Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I am Richard Krauss, and this may be the most international episode of the show that we've ever done. We've got people from all over the world, from England, from Italy, well, Seattle. I guess it's not all that far, but it's far enough. It's the other side of the continent almost. So we've got people from all over the place coming by today. Uh, first up, you'll meet Ben Wheatley. Ben Wheatley is a filmmaker whose movie High Rise... I guess I should preface that by saying his outrageous new movie, High Rise, uh, opens in theaters next week. Then I'm going to introduce you to Jim Lynch. Jim Lynch is uh, an author who's written a terrific new book called Before the Wind. Uh, he's an award winner for books like The Highest Tide, Border Songs, and Truth Like the Sun. Uh, but this book is uh, a little different because it's a little more personal for him. He grew up on sailboats and he's written a novel that takes place sort of in the world of sailing. Uh, interesting stuff, we'll get to him in just a bit. Uh, also, we have um, the director of A Bigger Splash. If you haven't seen A Bigger Splash yet, check it out. I love this movie. Tilda Swinton, Dakota Johnson, Ray Fiennes is in there and it's a lurid and, and luscious thriller with uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, tons of nudity. It's good stuff. And I talked to uh, the director of that film. His name is uh, Luca, and I will never be able to pronounce his last name. I hope he'll forgive me. I'm going to call it Guadagnino. And he's fantastic. I love talking to him. The quality of the interview was great. The sound quality wasn't so good, though. So we're going to get to that one a little bit later on. First up, though, let's talk to Ben Wheatley. Now, how do you describe High Rise? It's a darkly funny story based on a J.G. Ballard novel. And maybe if you imagine the love child of Lord of the Rings and the Towering Inferno, uh, you'll get an idea of what the movie is all about. It is the story of social warfare in the closed environment of an apartment building. Uh, it's pretty relevant. Uh, I suppose just as relevant as it was when J.G. Ballard wrote it in 1975. Stars Tom Hiddleston, loads of other people. Uh, this is uh, good stuff, challenging stuff. Stuff that'll make you scratch your head a few times, make you go, huh? But maybe if you listen to this interview first with the director, Ben Wheatley, uh, you won't go in completely blind. Here's Ben Wheatley. This differs, I think, from your previous work in that it's an adaptation. And you read this book as a team. Why do you think it stayed with you so long? Um, I think it's, it's kind of... Um, it's a... Remembering the story, it's a thing that it, it, it's, it's like culturally it's kind of um, infected everything. And I feel like I've been reading it again and again and again since since I was a, a kid in lots of different forms, you know. And certainly, in, like, I read a lot of comics and stuff like that, and it's certainly in, totally inside the, the comics world um, and in sci-fi movie world as well. Um, but it was... What what struck me about it was that when I first read it, it was more uh, a kind of, you know, it's obviously a predictive fiction, um, and it was something that could happen, a warning, you know, that the Ballard used to describe it, that he was like, standing by the side of the road, waving, there's, there's danger ahead. But when you when I reread it when I was 40, it's like, oh, Christ, it's not a warning anymore. It's just basically looks like it's been taken from the newspapers, you know, it's, it's actually happening. Um, which was kind of shocking, but also quite interesting, you know. And I thought, well, you know, that, that it, it, 
for a book that's so old now, it's actually more, more so prescient and so um, and, and more kind of relevant than it's ever been. You know. Do you think that if Nick Rogue had actually managed to get it made in the 70s, that the film would have been vastly different, or at least the ideas that the film was trying to get across, than your film? I mean, I couldn't, for a split second, pretend to uh, imagine what Nick Rogue would have done with it. You know, that is a unique mind. (laughs) I've met met Nick, and um, I'm a massive, massive fan of his work, but, yeah, I don't think... uh, Only a fool would try and... uh, (laughs) of all the people in the world to second guess Nick Rogue is not one of them well I, I have to tell you I think that we share a, a fondness for Ken Russell and the works of Ken Russell. I wrote a book about one of his movies, The Devils. Oh, uh, man, I love The Devils. Yeah, yeah, The Devils is a fantastic movie. So you must be been in contact with Mark Kermode as well. Yeah, yeah Mark yeah. Kermode, and, and uh, I interviewed Ken for it. I did one of the last interviews with him, and right. I interviewed Murray Mel. I interviewed everybody, found right. everybody. Except for Jarman, probably. Uh, except for Jarman, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the book's only, I think, three years old now, so yeah. I, everyone that I interviewed was in their 70s, 80s, and 90s then, and Jarman's been, well. been gone for some time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when I was watching this film, I, I wasn't thinking of Rogue so much as an influence, but Ken Russell, I thought, you know, in the Marie Antoinette scene when they're all laughing yeah. at, at him, I thought, well, in The Devils, you've got Grandier burning on the stake and, and his ex-lover laughing at him while he's, while he's burning. And I was wondering if there were echoes of, of Ken Russell's work in there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's not, it wasn't like we were thinking about it in the moment and going, this, just, this, this is going to be the Ken Russell scene, you know. But it, it's more that I think there's a willingness to experiment um, that Russell has and a, and a, and a, a fearlessness about taste, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that he has, which I admire. And the same with Rogue as well, you know, that he's, he, he was a, a fearless experimenter and, um, and, and with Borman too, you know. So I think it's, I don't think there's specifics necessary that I see, but then I might be blind to them because I'm making the stuff and that you might be more qualified to spot than than me but but I think that the, the I think that the outlook of those these guys is is what's what's inspiring to me you mm-hmm. know that's sort of, I think, more of, of, of what I thought. I, I wasn't sure that I would say, okay, the scene is borrowed from this and or inserted in here. It was more just kind of the, the, the feel. And I, as I was watching this again for the second time yesterday, I couldn't kind of help but think that this movie, if it was made 40 years ago, um, would have stylistically fit in with with this kind of new wild thing that was happening then that mainstream audiences I think were more used to seeing then than they are now yeah yeah I mean it's like well the devils was a hit mm-hmm. in the UK and that's this crazy one or or wasn't um, Tommy and Listomania playing uh, either side of Leicester Square at the same time <laughs> and they were then that was the mainstream yeah. so you know and when you dig into the BFI archives and look at like the Jack Bond stuff and you see what were the actual the other end of it which was the the avant-garde cinema that was being made at the same time it was absolutely crazy so it's kind of that you know and what british television used to look like in the 70s and 80s you know which was incredibly experimental you know it's a real shame you know that it's it's kind of it's lost and that that also what makes me chuckle is when you see reviews are saying that you know that uh, saying that high rise is you know insane or that it's kind of uh that that is incredibly experimental, and you think this film would have been almost 
it wouldn't quite have stood out in the seventies as being that strange. You know, it would have it would have been a more conservative movie of that period. Well, it know? could have been a studio picture at that movie at that time. The Devil yeah. was made by Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah. You Not know. that they were that happy about it, to be fair, <laughs> and remain very unhappy about it to this day. <laughs> To get a movie like this made now, I read a, a, an article for you somewhere where you said, um, you know, how do you trigger the financing for a film as crazy as this? This is yourself asking the, the, the question. Yeah. And, you know, Tom Hiddleston helps, uh, yeah. I'm sure Elizabeth Moth. But how do you raise money? If you, if you can tell me, how does it happen? Is, is it the stars down sort of thing? Um, yeah, well, it's all sorts of things. I mean, I think there was an appetite to see the, ba the ballads being put to, on the screen and the, the unique way that the British film industry funds. So you've got the BFI putting money in and Film 4 and um, the tax credit. So, you know, there's quite a lot of public money in there. Um, which can make, you know, as a big spine of the of the budget of the film. Um and then yeah, like you say with the with with, with kind of um Hollywoody or um famous actors that all helps too, you know. So it's uh I like I like what Jeremy Thomas says about it though, that his whole career has been about smuggling um weird into the mainstream, you know, and and I think that's um and that's about right, you know, so on, on, but it's a deal, isn't it, between you and the audience. It's like you're going, Well, you know, it's there's material in here that's difficult and there's structure in here that's kind of difficult but there's also um fun you know and there's there's anarchy and there's there's sex and there's dancing and there's music and all these you know it, it, i always like to think about it in terms of like well those 40s and 50s hollywood movies that it used to look like you know that that there'd be no contradiction in a in a cowboy movie stopping for five minutes for someone to sing a song you know and it, like a bollywood film or something where yeah yeah something. but more like more like you know like uh, the big sleep where it's like fine for call to just rock up and do a do a tune by by the piano and no one you know you don't think about the pacing of that being really odd but it but it but the idea behind it is that it's it, that those films were broken up into chunks of um a variety aren't they there's a variety to it that that makes those films really enjoyable and that's what i was hoping for with this you know that it's on some some level it you know there's a there's message there's um drama there's pathos and there's um and there's music and there's um uh, kinetic violence but there's also um sex as well and a lot of humor yeah and totally. you know when i think of uh the other uh, Ballard adaptations that have come to the screen. Crash comes to mind. Mm. Uh, David Cronenberg, uh, probably sitting not too far from where I am right now. He lives in Toronto, as do I. Yep. And uh, that movie, though, has a very kind of cold feel to it. A it's a pretty funny of... movie, though, isn't it? You it it be is fair, funny. You know. It is funny. And I find David... Uh, personally, to be one of the funniest people going, uh, but also his films, I think, have a lot more humor than people give them credit, credit. to. But it is, a, it, it is kind of a colder film. Whereas this is a bit, I don't know what the word is, body. It's a, you know, it, it's it's a bit wilder. It's a, it's rawer maybe, and it's a bit more. It, uh, it's a bit less tasteful maybe. I think that's the thing. But I, you know, I think they're. Um, you know, I've always found Cronenberg's films really funny. You know, video drums particularly funny, and you know, even The Fly is pretty funny. You know, yeah. but it, it's uh, yeah. I mean, that's just taste, isn't it? And, and I and I think his there's something the dryness of his movies is was what's so brilliant about them. You know.
And we just have time for one last question. Uh, this book has a huge cult following. Uh, I was out today and earlier mentioned to someone that I was going to be interviewing you, and he said, you have to ask him, why this book? Why? And he was so passionate about it. Mm. There is a huge cult following here. Does that add pressure to you as a filmmaker, or do you just see your work as your work and people will accept it or not? Or well, yeah. I mean, I don't think you because because the 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 group of fans is so broad and so big that you can't please you can't set out thinking you're going to please them particularly because you know you're one one man's. I mean, I've I've seen reviews of the film which have said um, this film is too much like the book. That's why it's bad. And then other ones are saying this film is nothing like the book. <laughs> That's why it's bad. And you go, well, fuck me. Okay, right. Well, there, there's no. Obviously, you can't help either of those two positions, you know. But I think what we felt, Amy and I felt when we went into it, it was the way to protect ourselves from it was that that we went into it wanting to make as close an adaptation of the book as we could from page to screen, you know. Um, and if we kept stuck to that, then whatever happened. Uh, hopefully we would um, not upset the fans, you know. I think if we, if you go in and you go, there's the name, and then you gut the book out, and you put your own story in, uh, which happens a lot with novel adaptations, then that's when you're in trouble, isn't it? It's like when you start making stuff up and it's all completely different from the thing. Well, they're trying to get me now. I can hear them phoning. But um, uh, I think that's the... Um, that, so, yeah, so we basically didn't really think about it until it was finished, and we thought, well, we've gone into it with best intentions, and hopefully that will that will come across. And it seems like the reaction has been pretty good, you know. I mean, there's, there's the Bladian website, and we've been interviewed a couple of times by those guys, and they, they there seems to be a consensus that we haven't totally pissed up the leg of the memory of J.G. Ballard. But I, think, I think we've, you know, I, and I... Yeah, I, I, we, and we certainly never. There was never any intention to rile those people because they're, you know, that without them, there's that's partly to do with why there's an appetite to make the film because there's a fan base, you know. Yeah, there'd be no legacy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's that. Why would you? You know, why would you go out of your way to irritate people like that? But at, but at the same time, you can't. Um, it's not like a. Uh, like a government uh, body where you get sit around with everyone and negotiate what you're going to do. You've still got to just go and do it, you know. And I think that also they're quite elastic in their thinking. You know, they don't want, like, a, you can't do a straight adaptation of it word for word, page for page, because it, it's a different, it's a, that, that just shows the problems between the two mediums. They just don't match, you know. Well, so much of the book, and we're out of time, but so much of the book uh, is description, Yes, it, it's, yeah. it, it's not necessarily as cinematic as, as uh, you might hope for, but um, that they, they are going to pull you away from me. So Yeah, yeah, so they're going to keep the door in in a minute and listen, carry me off. This I, is going to be like Apocalypse Now when they, they pick up Willard at the... Uh... <laughs> 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 okay, listen, I love talking to that guy. That's Ben Wheatley. The movie is called High Rise. And, uh, you know, he says that uh, Jeremy Thomas says that his whole career had been about smuggling weird into the mainstream. I think Ben Wheatley is following in those very footsteps, along with 
you know, the footsteps of Ken Russell and Nick Rogue and lots of others. But check out High Rise when you have a chance. Jim Lynch is the author of Before the Wind. He's an award-winning novelist. He grew up on the sea, uh, unlike me, who kind of grew up next to the sea. I didn't go on the sea very often, uh, but he loved sailing and continues to love sailing. So we had a chance to talk about his novel uh, and the idea of what it's like to grow up with the ocean as your neighbor. Jim, you say that this is a book that you spent most of your life preparing for. Six years to write, but right. sort of most of your life leading up to preparing for it. Tell me about that. Uh, well, my, my father was a fanatical sailor, and so he kind of forced my whole family to sail, and so it became the family obsession since it was his. And um, and we all kind of bought into it because my father was always in a fantastic mood whenever he was sailing, and I think when you're a toddler and you know a small child, if your dad's in a great mood, there's no better place to be. Um, and so I, as soon as I decided that I wanted to write novels, I knew that I wanted to write a novel that had sailing in it. It just took me a long time to get back around to it. And I thought that if I could describe sailing as precisely as possible and get at kind of the uh, you know, thrill and the exhilaration and the danger and the chaos of it, you know, that it could be kind of a microcosm of life. At least that was the thought in my head. Um, and then as time wore on, I wanted to write a family novel as well, and the two collided. Yeah, and so what you've done is you've woven this story together about uh, a family who typically look after yachts for rich people, and they build and refurbish and, and, and sail a, a boat of their own. Right. And, and it brings the family back together in ways unexpected and expected, I think. Right. Well, and they're competitive sailors as well. Mm -hmm. The father was a, a Olympic medalist, and, and the daughter, Ruby, has this borderline magical gift for sailing that was very fun to explore and it kind of held the family together uh, until it, uh, she turned her back on her gift and turned her back on the family and the family kind of splintered and the novel is kind of about getting the family back together for one last big race remodeling an old boat of theirs yeah. that uh, uh, wouldn't seem like it could be competitive. And you grew up on the water, as did I, and I think when you do, you learn uh, the true nature of, of the power of the ocean. And I, I don't think you can really understand it unless you look at it every single day, as I did for, you know, 15, 16 years of my life. What did it mean to you to grow up on the water? Well, uh, like you say, I mean, you definitely, you definitely learn the power of it. But what, what entertains me about boating is that so often there are people that have never done it that that buy a sailboat at an auction for 800 bucks and then start outfitting it to you know sail from Seattle to China or right. they, they get it in their head <laughs> yeah, that they're yeah, just yeah, yeah. they're going Good out idea. into the ocean it, that this is their life's quest and so I find like uh, sailboats kind of embody people's um, dreams to some degree even if it's just out day sailing there's there's some kind of visceral um, historical thrill in it and you actually own sailboats. You wrote part of this book. The final draft was written on right. a sailboat, wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah. I, it's kind of, uh, I guess it's like method writing. That, <laughs> I, that for the final stretch of writing this, this book, I, I did write it on, on this boat, and there was a there was a thrill to going down the dock and, and climbing aboard my boat and hunkering down there with the rain pounding down on on the roof and <laughs> with my little whirring fan and Miles Davis going round and round and round <laughs> until the book finally you know lifted up and and took off. And you say also that you're quite sentimental about your boats. You've owned a number of them. Right. And tell me about that because I, there's a, a great passage I read somewhere where you were you're out racing or you're out sailing and you passed one of your old boats. Uh, that's true. Uh, yeah, I, I sold a boat that I'd had for 10 years, and, and people usually say that uh, your your 
best moments of boat ownership is when you buy it and when you sell it. <laughs> um, and for me, it's, it's uh, I get so attached to it, it almost feels like I'm letting my dog go to somebody else. And so, uh, yeah, I sailed past my old boat, and I, I'm on my bigger, faster boat going by my poor boat, and, and I could just practically hear it whimpering. You know, it was, So, yeah, I, I, I very much uh, uh, personalize my boats, and I, I find that people... Uh, I, I state this in the book that, uh, you know, just as people eventually start to look like their dogs, they also begin to eventually look like their boats. I'm, I'm pretty convinced. Like... You mentioned a little bit earlier talking, trying to figure out how to describe the, the action and the chaos and all that stuff that goes right. on. And that's part of what you love about sailing, I'm sure, is that, you know, that sort of adrenaline rush that comes along with it. But there has to be more, too. There's some, is there a, a peacefulness that you find out there where you're sort of shut off from all the aggravations of, of day-to-day life? Yeah, I think that there's um, there's a higher level of uh, serenity when you're out on the water being powered by a, a natural force. Um, and, I, and I found it really interesting and incorporated into the book how Einstein, uh, that was his favorite pastime, mm-hmm. is to go sailing, and how um, he liked it as it was his favorite place to go out and think about the universe. You know, he'd be out there looking, I mean, where better to think about gravity and light and and uh, I also love the fact that he was a bad sailor, you know, that he, that he capsized all the time. The master of physics couldn't quite grasp the physics of sailing. That was Jim Lynch talking about his fantastic new novel, Before the Wind. You can pick it up wherever fine and not so fine books are sold, but check it out. It's a good read. Next up, Luca Guadagnino. Uh, now, he is the director of A Bigger Splash, and we're kind of keeping with the water theme, I guess. Uh, this is based very loosely on a 1965 French film. In English, the title was The Swimming Pool, and it had a look at beautiful people and sexual jealousy set against the backdrop of the Côte d'Azur. Now, Luca has taken this film and updated it, put his own little spin on it. It's now uh, on a remote island in Italy uh, that is the story of a rock star who's ex-lover and record producer shows up and causes a bunch of trouble. The rock star is played by Tilda Swinton. The ex-lover and record producer is played by Ray Fiennes, who brings along his daughter, Dakota Johnson. Uh, In this movie, though, Ray Fiennes gives what I think must be his loosest performance ever. And one of the scenes that will stay in your mind long after you've walked out of the theater is Ray Fiennes strutting his stuff, cutting a rug to disco-era Rolling Stones. The song's Emotional Rescue. And so I asked Luca about putting that together, and I really liked uh, his answer. I liked that he talked about psychoanalytical dancing. And if you want to know what that is, fight through the sound quality of this next clip, and you'll get to it. Well, everything starts with the brilliant script by Dave Kajani. And, and the description of how this man loses himself to the dance. Starting from there, uh, they erased proposing to work with the choreographer from London called Annie, and uh, we met her, and uh, I spoke to her lengthily, and we decided that it was good for her to let Ray find something wild within him, and to let him be loose with his own body and let him be confident with his own movements. And, and basically the, 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 the conversation and the work of choreographer with Ray 
went into for, for, for weeks into what I describe as a sort of psychoanalytical choreography. It was about unleashing and making him confident of the unleashing of this dance for him. It wasn't a choreography that was staged gesture by gesture. It was about really creating that naturality, that flaw. Then uh, the flow, sorry, flow, not flaw, flow. Uh, and then we, we, we sh I, I decided to shoot the film in the most uh, uh, classical, in the sense of the Hollywood, the, the classical Hollywood musical style, which is to have the camera as wide as possible and to cut as less as possible. Right. So to give complete and total um, power to the world, to the man in the face. Wow, what a jam-packed show that was. Lots of good stuff in there. Hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to all the guests. Uh, we're going to shut it down now. That's it. That's it for this week of the House of Cross. Time to go out and take a walk in the sunshine and see what's going on in the real world. But be sure to swing by here again next Monday. We put a new show up every single week. And uh, we'd love for you to come by. And really, you never know who's going to stop by for a visit. I mean, who would have expected Ben Weekly to come by today? Not me. Anyway, come by next week because who knows, maybe one of your favorites will swing by.